So some of you are looking at your clock and saying it's 11.40 and he's just getting on. Well, some of you sat through sporting events for three hours yesterday. So suck it up. How's your joy meter this morning? Joy meter good? Yeah, good, okay. A few of you are enthusiastic. Is your, is your joy meter registering full? Depends on if your team won yesterday or not, right? <laughs> hey, by the way, before I forget to mention it, uh, Lansing Christian men's soccer team, way to go. You won this, yeah. Um, they won the state championship yesterday, and then I, I learned this morning also East Lansing, was it men? East Lansing men's won, yeah. Soccer, so played on the same field. Well, way to go, excellent. So um, this question, how your joy meter is doing, is um, kind of a weird question, but what I want you to do is go to John 15, and in John 15, you're going to see a passage that we're going to look at briefly that has to do with where you're at in in your joy relationship. I've used a phrase most of my life, and I I never understood that it originated in Texas. Um, This phrase is, uh, between a rock and a hard place. And I just learned this last year that that phrase originated in Texas. And if you've been to Texas, you know specifically about that phrase because if you live in the desert southwest, you know what it is to be in a rock or in a hard place because you got either or. Generally, not a whole lot of soft soil there. This um, issue of the rock and the hard place really comes out in John chapter 15. That it's really kind of hard to have joy when you're between a rock and a hard place. And you'll find it in John chapter 15 because the disciples are caught between a rock and a hard place and yet Jesus is telling them to have joy. Here's the rock. He's made a pronouncement in chapter 13 that he's leaving and he can't take them with him. As a matter of fact, he said, it's for your benefit that I leave And they don't really understand what's going on. And so they begin questioning him a lot in John chapter 13 saying, where are you going? What do you mean we can't go? Why would you go someplace we can't go with you? So that's the rock. Here's the hard place. He said, by the way, while I'm gone, people are going to hate you. And they're going to persecute you. And they're going to kill you. And you talk about a rock in a hard place. Uh, I want to put this on the screen for you. We're not going to get all the way to verse 15 this morning. We're just going to take a couple verses, but I want you to see this part. This is the way Jesus said it. Verse 18, John chapter 15. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love its own. But because you do not belong to the world, but I chose you out of the world for this reason, the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my word, they will obey yours too. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name. Now this conversation took place in the upper room. We just celebrated communion. We we see it as a joyous event. We remember. They're in the heat of the battle in the upper room conversation. See, it wasn't just about remembering my body and remembering my blood. He's telling them also this. I'm about to leave and you're going to be hated. And then he steps it up a notch. Let me put chapter 16 on the screen for you. Verse 2, a time is coming when the one who kills you will think he's offering service to God. 
They will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember that I told you about them. Why would Jesus want them to know this in advance? I don't know if you ever read that before and maybe you looked at it and thought, what's the benefit of knowing in advance that that's going to happen? Wouldn't it be better just to let it play out? Well, here's my take on it. And After studying it a lot, um, I think Jesus is encouraging them. You might look at that and say, you're crazy, Mark. <laughs> How would that be encouraging to know that people are going to hate you and persecute you and kill you? Well, for one, it tells you specifically that when they're going through those things and when we endure hard times, that it's not out of God's control. He absolutely knows what's coming. And Jesus is telling them in advance to expect it. What would it be like if Jesus had left them behind and they got persecuted and they were hated and killed, literally tortured, and Jesus hadn't said that in advance to them, they would begin to wonder, what are we doing wrong? Why are things not going our way? See, this is encouraging news, even though it doesn't feel like it. So in the midst of really, really difficult circumstances, the followers of Jesus are expected not just to hold their own and keep their ground, but they're also supposed to be advancing the kingdom. Now let me take you to the verse I really want to get to this morning, and it's verse 7. In the beginning of our 40-day adventure, six weeks ago, I put this one up for you. Very specifically, this is what it says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And I told you at that time, we were going to come full circle all the way back around to it. Well, here's the full circle. Week six, and we've come back around to this one, John 15, 7. Jesus is saying, as you move forward, you've got to check all your requests by one overruling concern that's going on in the midst of your life. Am I abiding What does that look like? Well, let me give you some context so you really understand the setting in the upper room and why Jesus is speaking this way to this group of guys. First of all, understand that if you were living in first century Israel, you would find that there were three educational venues available to you. Every single Israelite went through the same educational system. Meaning that at the age of six to the age of 10 or 11, every boy and girl was invited to go to what we would consider elementary school today. They called it Bet Sefer, B-E-T, meaning school. That's the word for school, school of Sefer. And in Bet Sefer, every six-year-old to 10 or 11-year-old would study the Torah. That was their textbook, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the midst of that, they would study science and mathematics, mathematics and reading and writing. But their textbook was God's Word. Now, on the very first day of school, when a six-year-old came into the classroom, the rabbi would hand them a piece of slate, uh, literally a piece of stone, and that would be their tablet for their time in Bet Sefer. And on that tablet, they would find that the rabbi had put a spoonful of honey. And he would instruct the students to hold that piece of slate with honey in front of them, and he would read to them Psalm 19.1. And as they sat in awe, and he said, the word of the Lord is sweeter than the honeycomb, he would say, students, I want you to lick your slate. And they would lick the honey off from their slate. Every time for the rest of their life, whenever they ate honey, they would remember Psalm 19. The word of the Lord is sweeter than the honeycomb. Because they were about to base their entire studies on the word of the Lord. So this was the regimen. At age six, they began memorizing the book of Genesis. 
At age seven, they began memorizing the book of Exodus. And I don't mean the word Exodus. I mean the book. So that by the time they're 11 years of age, they had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. Just like that, all the way through to the fifth book. Now, by the time you turned 11, if you were the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest, the cream of the crop, you were invited to go to the next level of education, which would be Bet Midrash. And the young men who entered into Bet Midrash from age 11 or 12 to age 15 would begin studying the rest of the Old Testament all the way to the book of Malachi. And they would be expected to memorize it. If by age 15 they were the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest, and they had taken the words of the rabbi so deeply into their life, they would be invited to Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud took place from age 16 to age 30. And that's when they would study all the writings of the rabbis, all the writings of the Talmud, and they would go where their rabbi went, and they would walk where their rabbi went. And they took this so seriously that the young men literally moved into the house of the rabbi. From 16 to 30, they would sleep where he slept. They would eat what he ate. If he went into the bathroom, they went into the bathroom with him. How awkward would that be? This was their life. Their desire was to walk so closely with their rabbi that they would be covered in the dust of the rabbi walking that close to him as he talked so that they could listen to him. Why do I tell you all this? The Bet Sefer, the Bet Midrash, the Bet Talmud. The Bet Sefer is what all the disciples went through. They're sitting in the upper room that night and they're hearing their rabbi say to them, abide in me. Now that spoke very specifically to these young men. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? That's the question we've got to ask ourselves because we're told in verse 7 that if we're abiding in Christ and His words are abiding in us, we can ask whatever we wish. So we really need to understand this as we wrap up these 40 days. So let me put up on the screen for you first the, the English word abide. I know you're familiar with it. We don't use it much in the English language today, but it literally means to bear up under. That's the English version, but let's look at the Greek version, the word menno. The word abide in menno means to stand. To stand in a military term means to stand on conquered ground. Ground that cost something to take. At the price of blood, ground was conquered. And so Jesus is using this word menno, stand on this place where this ground has been conquered, stand in me. Now I know from my own personal experience, abiding in Christ is a great, great struggle. It's a great struggle for many followers of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I believe it to be the most common failure among Christians. Abiding is a very, very difficult thing to do. Those who love Jesus do not always obey Jesus. Can we agree on that? It's true. If we're just being transparent this morning, at times we really fail to fully abide in Christ. However, if we don't stand, if we don't remain in Christ, it's really difficult to be productive because he wants us to be spiritually productive. That's what his desire is for us. So we have in John 15 this picture that Jesus uses. What I'm going to do is go through verse 1 and 2 very, very quickly so that we can get to verse 7. But let me put this image for you on the screen. John 15, 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. 
That's not the only thing he said, but here's the image and here's why he said that. In Israel, the the vine was part of everything that they did. The, The vine was carved into the temple. It was very familiar imagery to them. It was part of their economic base. And God used it as an image for Israel. Look with me on the screen at Isaiah 15.4. This is God speaking. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? He's speaking of Israel. They're producing rotten fruit. God longs for good fruit, so the Father prunes us. That's what He does. He's He's the keeper of the vineyard. And He removes anything that can ultimately sap our productivity. Anything that's going to obstruct you from being what God really wants you to be. And in some cases in your life, and I know you've experienced this this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, that involves cutting things away from your life. Things that have to be disciplined in your life. Things that have brought unrighteousness into your life. And God will do it with extremely, extremely sharp scissors. You're going to see that in just a minute. It involves cutting away things that limit your righteousness, but I guarantee you, God will prune you in some fashions, and it can be very, very painful. I'm here to tell you, I've experienced it myself. And you don't have to be walking away from Christ to be pruned. You can be in the midst of working for the kingdom and be pruned because God wants to shape us and form us, not so that we're more fit for heaven. That happens at the moment of salvation. You profess your faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved. When he prunes, it's to make you more productive. So many Christians desire God to make them more productive, but they don't want the pruning process. It's really hard. So let me encourage you to do something. If you're being pruned right now and you feel like God has got these super sharp scissors and he's cutting things out of your life and it really, really hurts, maybe you've lost some relationships Maybe you've lost some economic stability. Maybe there's some things that are trying to shape you and it hurts and you want out of it. Rather than crying out to God to get you out of the situation, how about if you do what Daniel did? We saw that two weeks ago in which Daniel said, God, how can I learn from you in the midst of this? What do you want to teach me while I'm being pruned? Because God prunes, he's going to do it, whether you're out of fellowship or you're in fellowship. Why? Because we're capable of falling into a useless state. He knows that that's the case for us. So if you're being pruned right now, I'm going to encourage you with knowing this. If you're being pruned, it's because the Father is very, very close to you. He doesn't prune with a chainsaw, and he doesn't do it from a distance. He does it with a very, very sharp instrument. Let me show you what that is. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews 4.12. It says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The the two-edged sword is the sharpest thing that they had. They didn't have a surgeon's scalpel. Today we we would probably insert the words a surgeon's scalpel, that the word of God is sharper than a surgeon's scalpel. And look what it's capable of doing. It's so sharp that it can judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So this thing that you're holding in your lap this morning, maybe it's sitting in the pew rack in front of you. You're reading it on the screen. This thing right here, according to God's Word, and God never lies, He says it's so sharp, it can actually judge the intentions of your heart. Now that's a very, very sharp instrument. Let's go on and see what Jesus said in verse 4. 
Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, Just this week, I was talking with somebody in the church who said they're just feeling like they weren't producing any fruit in their life. There's no evidence that they were feeling um, fruitful. Many Christians complain of barrenness. And this is going to sound accusatory, but I just want you to hear it for what it is. Many believers fail to trace the barrenness to the source. And the source is a lack of abiding, a lack of being in God's Word. Now understand, Jesus has the Talmudim in the room. These guys who have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they know God's Word. They've walked with Jesus for three years, and yet He still has to say to them, abide in me. So our part is to remain, to stand on this conquered ground. But here's the 101 of what that looks like. Let me put it on the screen for you. It's in your notes this morning as well. That really involves staying in the Word and in prayer. You'd be surprised how many times I have conversations. I know Gary's had conversations with individuals who are going through really, really tough times in their life, especially relationally. And we begin asking them questions about where they're at in their walk and just raise this very simple question. Are you reading God's Word? Are you studying God's Word? And usually the response more often than not comes back, no, I'm really not. I I just never even thought about that myself. It's not done in an accusatory way. It's just a reality that if we avoid this abiding, if we're not staying in God's Word, we can expect that we're going to start feeling the pain of that. So the first part is staying in the Word and in prayer. Here's the second part, confessing sin. I don't know if you do that on a regular basis. I I started out this morning just by saying, Father, would you just search my heart? See if there's any sinful way in me. I know people don't like to think of their pastors doing that. Uh, Pastors walk without sin in some cases. No, that's not the case. Think of, would you have Paul as your pastor if he was available today? Yeah, I'd, I'd be sitting right there, okay? If Paul was available... And listen to the words Paul said, wretched man that I am. The things that I wish that I would do, I don't do. See, we all battle with sin issues. And so we have to confess sin before the Father. Why? So that it doesn't hinder our walk. Here's the third part, obeying Him. That's the 101 stuff. Jesus goes deeper when He says in verse 5 this, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You know when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, that's code for, I'm the boss, you're not. Right? Okay? That's what he's saying. I'm the boss, I'm in charge, I'm the vine, you're not, you're the branches. So if he wants us to be producing fruit and he's the boss, what does fruit look like? If you're raised in church, you're familiar with this, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the overarching stuff. That's the characteristic of stuff that's supposed to be flowing in and out of us if we're walking with Christ. Let's drill down. What does that really look like in our life? Well, what you just did this morning, when you lifted the communion cup and you were praising God and thanking God and remembering what Jesus did, that's fruit, church. When you stood up to sing, if you sang from an authentic heart, you're producing fruit. If you go to the offering box this morning and you leave some of your financial resources for the church to use to advance the kingdom, 
you're producing fruit. That's one of the more interesting questions we get from people who are new to New Hope, who, who say, how come you guys never take an offering here? What's the deal? How come you never take up, talk about money? Well, you're right. We don't talk about money very much here. Here's why. When we launched the church six years ago, I was convicted in my heart, absolutely, that finances and giving to God is an extremely personal thing. It's very private. It's between you and the Father. And instead of doing it in a public fashion, we decide to do it in a private fashion, much as the way they did it in the first century. They had offering boxes where people would take their money to. But every time you decide to give some of your financial resources that God has blessed you with to help the Compassionate Care Fund, to, to fund this in such a way that we can meet the needs of people who are struggling to pay their bills or help people put gas in their tank, you're producing fruit, church. When you give to the general fund to advance the work of the church, you're producing fruit. That's why Scripture says you've got to be a cheerful giver when you give. You've got to do it out of the abundance of your heart. So when we drill down into this, we would say that giving to God is producing fruit. Let me give you an example of this. Look with me on the screen at Romans 15, 28. This is Paul speaking to the church in Rome. He says, Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that's confusing if you're not familiar with the story, but here's what's going on. The people at the church in Jerusalem are starving to death. They're so poor, they can't even buy food. So Paul went to a couple other churches that were wealthy, like in Ikea, and he raised some money for an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And he decided to take that money and take it to Jerusalem. So he's telling the church in Rome, I'm going to come visit you, but first I'm going to take this fruit that's why he's saying this. I'm putting my seal on this fruit of theirs. I'm going to give it to them, and then I'm going to come back to you by way of Spain. See, he's calling giving money to God fruit. Here's another one. Maybe you've never really thought about it, but every time you live in a righteous manner, that God-honoring behavior in your life, you're producing fruit. So let me give you an example of that. It comes from Matthew 13, 23. The fruit produced by the good soil of a transformed life. So that people can look at you tomorrow or Wednesday, Friday this week. I just heard this used by somebody yesterday here at the church who was watching another person said, I see Jesus in that person. Isn't that a cool statement? That's the fruit of a transformed life. So this is how we know if we're producing fruit. Maybe you've never stopped to think about this before, but fruit is the outcome of prayer. I want to show you how you know that. Look with me up on the screen. Jesus said this in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Now, we know we can't do important things without Jesus, right? Okay, are you guys sleeping? We know we can't do important things without Jesus, right? It's just not possible. So we would never dream of trying to start a church without having Jesus involved in it. That's the really big important stuff. Who, who, who else could try and start something like this to take a church from 20 or 40 people to 600 people in six years? That's got to have God involved. That's got God's handprint all over it. We would never do something like that without Jesus. But how often do we try and do the little things without Jesus? See, what it says there in that passage is, apart from me, you can do nothing. No wonder we fail, church, and I do this myself all the time. We go out and try and do little things on our own and then wonder why it didn't succeed. And we have to step back and say, okay, God, sorry, I repent. I forgot. I should have come to you first. 
instead of trying to do this on my own. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Well, how do we get him engaged? Prayer. That's how we get God involved in the things that we believe he's calling us to do. Look at verse 7 now. He takes it up a notch. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So God's given us a blank check, but he hasn't signed the bottom of the check yet. Just handed it to us and said, I've got a big bank account. You ask whatever you wish if you're abiding in me. So we have to ask ourselves, how big is that bank account? What is he limited by? Absolutely nothing. But he's not signed off on it unless this. Look with me on the screen at 1 John 5.14. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now that presupposes three conditions in your life. It's in your notes this morning in your bulletin. I want you to see it on the screen as well because as we move out of these 40 days of prayer and you continue on with a daily active prayer life, you should know these three conditions. First of all, we're told, according to what we looked at the first week, the prayers must be offered in His name. Now that's not like we said this before, rubbing the bottle, asking the genie to pop out and saying, what can I grant your wish to be? That's not not what's going on here. We're talking about consistent with His will. Here's the second part. The promise is that this prayer request will be met only for those who abide in Christ. Maybe you've never stopped to think about this before, but God does not obligate Himself to answer the prayers of non-believers. Did you know that? That's consistent with Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. God does not obligate himself to answer the prayers of people who do not believe in him. As a matter of fact, he takes it a step further. He won't honor the prayers of those who are living in sin. Psalm 66.18, James 4.3, they all speak to this issue specifically. Look with me on the screen, James 4.3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. Meaning we can ask God for things and wonder why he doesn't do it. We can have the wrong objectives. Now, most of us are familiar with James 4 too, the one that just comes before this. It says, you have not because you ask not. Many people forget about James 4.3. It's because you ask with the wrong motives. You come with the wrong purpose or there's sin in your heart. So here's the next one. Number three, Christ's words have to abide in the person making the request. So let's pop back to that upper room setting. You have the Talmudin in the room who have memorized God's word. They've walked with Jesus for three years. He's about to be killed, and he's telling them they're between a rock and a hard place. And he says, you're going to be left behind. And if my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. When Jesus used the word words, it's the Greek word rema, and it means the utterances of God. We're not talking specifically about Jesus saying, hey guys, what did you bring me for lunch? But rather, we're talking about when he's making these utterances you have in the word of God today. Those words that are so lodged in your mind, so deep in your heart that when you're going through the really, really hard places in life, God's word pops to your mind. I will never leave you or forsake you. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the same was in the beginning with God. And everything that was made was made by him. And nothing was made that was not made through him. When God's word just spills out of you, you know that his words are so lodged in your mind, it's just a natural 
outflow of who you are. Therefore, when we ask things of God, we won't be asking outside of his will. So this might be a revelation for you this morning. Why is there so little power in prayer for just being transparent? Why is there so little power in prayer in Christ church today? Because there is so little abiding in Christ. Jesus made this promise. If you're abiding in me, my words are abiding in you, then you can ask what you wish and it will be done. Now hear me, church. Consider what I'm about to share with you, not from me, but from God himself. He would not have said what I'm about to share with you if he had not cared And it comes right out of verse 8. Hear this very, very clearly. Jesus speaking, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The Talmudin. That's who he's speaking to. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11 really drives it home. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So how is your joy meter registering this morning? Does it waver when your team loses? Team wins, team loses, team wins. See, that kind of happiness thing that we're talking about right there, that's circumstance. The disciples needed to understand What would it be like when you're between a rock and a hard place that your joy would be full? And so Jesus brings them all the way around to prayer. And he says, when you're doing these things, my joy is going to be in you and your joy is going to be full. And do you notice that it's really, really intimate? Jesus said, my joy, I'm giving it to you and it's going to be full in you. Now I want you to understand the degree by which we enter into this is determined by our walk our daily activity, because it is not automatic church. It's got to be cultivated in your life. It's the result of studying God's word. It's the result of serving each other. It's the result of praying. It's the result of worshiping, loving, learning, worship, prayer. So here's how we're going to close. I'm going to put this on the screen for you. It's in your notes. But I want you to know how you can know when you're abiding in Christ. It's really evident right out of Scripture. First of all, the very first thing you're going to know when you're abiding in Christ is you're going to experience the Father's pruning. If you're abiding in Him, you're going to be pruned so that you will bear more fruit. He wants us to be more productive. And a believer who's abiding in Christ is going to experience answered prayer. Think about this. Just in the last couple weeks, we prayed for baby Colton, who is in the ICU unit, A week ago, we watched Bruce and Erica bring baby Colton up here and we dedicated him before Christ. Did God answer prayer? Because people are abiding in Christ. Matt Matt Ryder going into surgery. Last week's Monday, we said last Sunday that he was going into this very, very important surgery. I understand there was like a 30% mortality rate with this surgery. God went before us and today Matt is walking the halls of the U of M hospital. He's going to be released on Monday. Why? God's people abiding in Christ. So you can measure yourself. If your prayers are being answered, you're abiding in Christ. And when you're abiding, you also are producing fruit. That may not mean for you, if you're not in a financial place where you can do what you want to do financially for the church, it might mean raking somebody's lawn. 
It might mean cleaning gutters for a widow lady who can't get up there on the eaves trough herself. But indeed, it does include supporting the work of your church, giving generously. God says that's fruit. And the fourth thing is experiencing joy. How is your joy meter this morning? Where is it registering at? So that you can tell. I want you to understand very, very clearly. Here's a crucial distinction. It is one thing to have Christ in us. It's another thing to abide in Him. One thing is a matter of His grace, and it can't ever be taken away from you, church. God gave it to you at the moment of salvation. It'll never be lost. But the other, abiding, that's our responsibility. That's what He told us to do. So one is perpetual. The other one can be interrupted by our own actions and a lack of abiding. So as branches, I'm here to tell you this morning, you're not the vine, you're the branches, and we have this amazing promise from our God that he will answer our prayers. He hears us, and he acknowledges what we bring before him when we're abiding in Christ. So how full is your joy tank this morning? Is it registering full? Even when you're between a rock and a hard place, even when the world hates you and persecutes you and wants to kill you, Jesus says in the midst of that, you can have joy. (laughs) Our God has got a great sense of humor, doesn't he? It's just like, what? How can we? Because of what we understand about God's word and the disciples got it. The disciples left that setting and within a month, they began to turn the world on its heels. Why? Because of the indwelling presence of God in their life because of his revealed word and because of prayer. The same three things that you have this morning. Can I pray with you about that this morning? That we would remember what it is to abide in Christ this week ahead of us. Let me ask God to drive it home for us. Father, I I ask first of all for my brothers and sisters here this morning who are experiencing the pruning process. And they know what it is to be clipped. God, there's some incredibly deep hurts here. Remind us that you're very, very near when you're pruning. When you're taking things away that would limit us in our righteousness and causing us to walk more fully with you. When you're separating relationships from us that can drag us down so that we would be more productive. Father, remind us that you're very, very near. And we know that you do this through the work of your word. So God, make your word alive for us. Take us to the place for everyone here where we're abiding in you. And that that would be true for us a week from today and two weeks from today and three weeks from today, not just when we're in church. Father, that we would remember to stay and spend time in your word, spend time talking to you and reminding ourselves that we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminders through communion. I pray your blessing upon this church. Thank you for these people who are willing to study your word. It's in Jesus' name, our risen King, that we pray. Amen.